part two of book one of on the nature of the gods by marcus tullius cicero translated by charles duke young this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by geoffrey edwards cotta with his usual courtesy then began Valeius, says he were it not for something which you have advanced i should have remained silent for i have often observed as i did just now upon hearing you that i cannot so easily conceive why a proposition is true as why it is false should you ask me what i take the nature of the gods to be i should perhaps make no answer but if you should ask whether i think it to be of that nature which you have described i should answer that i was as far as possible from agreeing with you however before i enter on the subject of your discourse and what you have advanced upon it i will give you my opinion of yourself your intimate friend l crassus has been often heard by me to say that you were beyond all question superior to all our learned romans and that few epicureans in greece were to be compared to you but as i knew what a wonderful esteem he had for you i imagined that might make him the more lavish in commendation of you now however though i do not choose to praise any one when present yet i must confess that i think you have delivered your thoughts clearly on an obscure and very intricate subject that you are not only copious in your sentiments but more elegant in your language than your sect generally are when i was at athens i went often to hear zeno by the advice of philo who used to call him the chief of the epicureans partly probably in order to judge more easily how completely those principles could be refuted after i had heard them stated by the most learned of the epicureans and indeed he did not speak in any ordinary manner but like you with clearness gravity and elegance yet what frequently gave me great uneasiness when i heard him as it did while i attended to you was to see so excellent a genius falling into such frivolous excuse my freedom not to say foolish doctrines however i shall not at present offer anything better for as i said before we can in most subjects especially in physics sooner discover what is not true than what is if you should ask me what god is or what his character and nature are i should follow the example of simonides who when hiero the tyrant proposed the same question to him desired a day to consider of it when he required his answer the next day simonides begged two days more and as he kept constantly desiring double the number which he had required before instead of giving his answer hiero with surprise asked him his meaning in doing so Quotes, because says he quote, the longer i meditate on it the more obscure it appears to me simonides who was not only a delightful poet 
but reputed a wise and learned man in other branches of knowledge found i suppose so many acute and refined arguments occurring to him that he was doubtful which was the truest and therefore despaired of discovering any truth but does your epicurus for i had rather contend with him than with you say anything that is worthy the name of philosophy or even of common sense in the question concerning the nature of the gods his first inquiry is whether there are gods or not it would be dangerous i believe to take the negative side before a public auditory but it is very safe in a discourse of this kind and in this company i who am a priest and who think that religions and ceremonies ought sacredly to be maintained am certainly desirous to have the existence of the gods which is the principal point in debate not only fixed in opinion but proved to a demonstration for many notions flow into and disturb the mind which sometimes seem to convince us that there are none but see how candidly i will behave to you as i shall not touch upon those tenets you hold in common with other philosophers consequently i shall not dispute the existence of the gods for that doctrine is agreeable to almost all men and to myself in particular but i am still at liberty to find fault with the reasons you give for it which i think are very insufficient you have said that the general assent of men of all nations and all degrees is an argument strong enough to induce us to acknowledge the being of the gods this is not only a weak but a false argument for first of all how do you know the opinions of all nations i really believe there are many people so savage that they have no thoughts of a deity what think you of diagoras who was called the atheist and of theodorus after him did not they plainly deny the very essence of a deity protagoras of abdra whom you just now mentioned the greatest sophist of his age was banished by order of the athenians from their city and territories and his books were publicly burned because these words were in the beginning of his treatise concerning the gods Quote, i am unable to arrive at any knowledge whether there are or are not any gods this treatment of him i imagine restrained many from professing their disbelief of a deity since the doubt of it only could not escape punishment what shall we say of the sacrilegious the impious and the perjured if tubulus lucius lupus or carpo the son of neptune as lucilius says had believed that there were gods would either of them have carried his perjuries and impieties to such excess your reasoning therefore to confirm your assertion is not so conclusive as you think it is but as this is the manner in which other philosophers have argued on the same subject i will take no further notice of it at present i rather choose to proceed to what is properly your own i allow that there are gods instruct me then concerning their origin inform me where they are what sort of body what mind they have and what is their course of life 
for these i am desirous of knowing you attribute the most absolute power and efficacy to atoms out of them you pretend that everything is made but there are no atoms for there is nothing without body every place is occupied by body therefore there can be no such thing as a vacuum or an atom i advance these principles of the naturalists without knowing whether they are true or false yet they are more like truth than those statements of yours for they are the absurdities in which democritus or before him lucippus used to indulge saying that there are certain light corpuscles some smooth some rough some round some square some crooked and bent as bows which by a fortuitous concourse made heaven and earth without the influence of any natural power this opinion caius valeius you have brought down to these our times and you would sooner be deprived of the greatest advantages of life than of that authority for before you were acquainted with those tenets you thought that you ought to profess yourself an epicurean so that it was necessary that you should either embrace these absurdities or lose the philosophical character which you had taken upon you and what could bribe you to renounce the epicurean opinion nothing you say can prevail on you to forsake the truth and the sure means of a happy life but is that the truth for i shall not contest your happy life which you think the deity himself does not enjoy unless he languishes in idleness but where is truth is it in your innumerable worlds some of which are rising some falling at every moment of time or is it in your atomical corpuscles which form such excellent works without the direction of any natural power or reason but i was forgetting my liberality which i had promised to exert in your case and exceeding the bounds which i at first proposed to myself granting then everything to be made of atoms what advantage is that to your argument for we are searching after the nature of the gods and allowing them to be made of atoms they cannot be eternal because whatever is made of atoms must have had a beginning if so there were no gods till there was this beginning and if the gods have had a beginning they must necessarily have an end as you have before contended when you were discussing plato's world where then is your beatitude and immortality in which two words you say that god is expressed the endeavour to prove which reduces you to the greatest perplexities for you said that god had no body but something like body and no blood but something like blood it is a frequent practice among you when you assert anything that has no resemblance to truth and wish to avoid reprehension to advance something else which is absolutely and utterly impossible in order that it may seem to your adversaries better to grant that point which has been a matter of doubt than to keep on pertinaciously contradicting you on every point like epicurus who when he found that if his atoms were allowed to descend by their own weight our actions could not be in our own power because their motions would be certain and necessary invented an expedient 
which escaped democritus to avoid necessity he says that when the atoms descend by their own weight and gravity they move a little obliquely surely to make such an assertion as this is what one ought more to be ashamed of than the acknowledging ourselves unable to defend the proposition his practice is the same against the logicians who say that in all propositions in which yes or no is required one of them must be true he was afraid that if this were granted then in such a proposition as quote, epicurus will be alive or dead to-morrow either one or the other must necessarily be admitted therefore he absolutely denied the necessity of yes or no can anything show stupidity in a greater degree zeno being pressed by arcesilaus who pronounced all things to be false which are perceived by the senses said that some things were false but not all epicurus was afraid that if any one thing should be false nothing could be true and therefore he asserted all the senses to be infallible directors of truth nothing can be more rash than this for by endeavouring to repel a light stroke he receives a heavy blow on the subject of the nature of the gods he falls into the same errors while he would avoid the concretion of individual bodies lest death and dissolution should be the consequence he denies that the gods have body but says they have something like body and says they have no blood but something like blood it seems an unaccountable thing how one soothsayer can refrain from laughing when he sees another it is yet a greater wonder that you can refrain from laughing among yourselves it is no body but something like body i could understand this if it were applied to statues made of wax or clay but in regard to the deity i am not able to discover what is meant by a quasi-body or quasi-blood nor indeed are you Velaeus, though you will not confess so much for those precepts are delivered to you as dictates which epicurus carelessly blundered out for he boasted as we see in his writings that he had no instructor which i could easily believe without his public declaration of it for the same reason that i could believe the master of a very bad edifice if he were to boast that he had no architect but himself for there is nothing of the academy nothing of the lyceum in his doctrine nothing but puerilities he might have been a pupil of xenocrates o oh, ye immortal gods what a teacher was he and there are those who believe that he actually was his pupil but he says otherwise and i shall give more credit to his word than to another's he confesses that he was a pupil of a certain disciple of plato one pamphilos at samos for he lived there when he was young with his father and his brothers his father neocles was a farmer in those parts but as the farm i suppose was not sufficient to maintain him he turned schoolmaster yet epicurus treats this platonic philosopher with wonderful contempt so fearful was he that it should be thought he had ever had any instruction 
but it is well known he had been a pupil of nausiphanes the follower of democritus and since he could not deny it he loaded him with insults in abundance if he never heard a lecture on these democritian principles what lectures did he ever hear what is there in epicurus's physics that is not taken from democritus for though he altered some things as what i mentioned before of the oblique motions of the atoms yet most of his doctrines are the same his atoms his vacuum his images infinity of space innumerable worlds their rise and decay and almost every part of natural learning that he treats of now do you understand what is meant by quasi-body and quasi-blood for i not only acknowledge that you are a better judge of it than i am but i can bear it without envy if any sentiments indeed are communicated without obscurity what is there that valeus can understand and cota not i know what body is and what blood is but i cannot possibly find out the meaning of quasi-body and quasi-blood not that you intentionally conceal your principles from me as pythagoras did his from those who were not his disciples or that you are intentionally obscure like heraclitus but the truth is which i may venture to say in this company you do not understand them yourself this i perceive is what you contend for that the gods have a certain figure that has nothing concrete nothing solid nothing of express substance nothing prominent in it but that it is pure smooth and transparent let us suppose the same with the venus of kos which is not a body but the representation of a body nor is the red which is drawn there and mixed with the white real blood but a certain resemblance of blood so in epicurus's deity there is no real substance but the resemblance of substance let me take for granted that which is perfectly unintelligible then tell me what are the lineaments and figures of these sketched-out deities here you have plenty of arguments by which you would show the gods to be in human form the first is that our minds are so anticipated and prepossessed that whenever we think of a deity the human shape occurs to us the next is that as the divine nature excels all things so it ought to be of the most beautiful form and there is no form more beautiful than the human and the third is that reason cannot reside in any other shape first let us consider each argument separately you seem to me to assume a principle despotically i may say that has no manner of probability in it who was ever so blind in contemplating these subjects as not to see that the gods were represented in human form either by the particular advice of wise men who thought by those means the more easily to turn the minds of the ignorant from a depravity of manners to the worship of the gods or through superstition 
which was the cause of their believing that when they were paying adoration to these images they were approaching the gods themselves these conceits were not a little improved by the poets painters and artificers for it would not have been very easy to represent the gods planning and executing any work in another form and perhaps this opinion arose from the idea which mankind have of their own beauty but do not you who are so great an adept in physics see what a soothing flatterer what a sort of procuress nature is to herself do you think there is any creature on the land or in the sea that is not highly delighted with its own form if it were not so why would not a bull become enamoured of a mare or a horse of a cow do you believe an eagle a lion or a dolphin prefers any shape to its own if nature therefore has instructed us in the same manner that nothing is more beautiful than man what wonder is it that we for that reason should imagine the gods are of the human form do you suppose if beasts were endowed with reason that every one would not give the prize of beauty to his own species yet by hercules i speak as i think though i am fond enough of myself i dare not say that i excel in beauty that bull which carried europa for the question here is not concerning our genius and elocution but our species and figure if we could make and assume to ourselves any form would you be unwilling to resemble the sea triton as he is painted supported swimming on sea monsters whose bodies are partly human here i touch on a difficult point for so great is the force of nature that there is no man who would not choose to be like a man nor indeed any ant that would not be like an ant but like what man for how few can pretend to beauty when i was at athens the whole flock of youths afforded scarcely one you laugh i see but what i tell you is the truth nay to us who after the examples of ancient philosophers delight in boys defects are often pleasing alcaeus was charmed with a wart on a boy's knuckle but a wart is a blemish on the body yet it seemed a beauty to him q catullus my friend and colleague's father was enamoured with your fellow-citizen roscius on whom he wrote these verses Quote, as once i stood to hail the rising day roscius appearing on the left i spied forgive me gods if i presume to say the mortal's beauty with the immortal vied roscius more beautiful than a god yet he was then as he now is squint-eyed but what signifies that if his defects were beauties to catullus i return to the gods can we suppose any of them to be squint-eyed or even to have a cast in the eye have they any warts are any of them hook-nosed flap-eared beetle-browed or jolt-headed as some of us are or are they free from imperfections let us grant you that are they all alike in the face 
for if they are many then one must necessarily be more beautiful than another and then there must be some deity not absolutely most beautiful or if their faces are all alike there would be an academy in heaven for if one god does not differ from another there is no possibility of knowing or distinguishing them what if your assertion Valeius, proves absolutely false that no form occurs to us in our contemplations on the deity but the human will you notwithstanding that persist in the defence of such an absurdity supposing that form occurs to us as you say it does and we know jupiter juno minerva neptune vulcan apollo and the other deities by the countenance which painters and statuaries have given them and not only by their countenances but by their decorations their age and attire yet the egyptians the syrians and almost all barbarous nations are without such distinctions you may see a greater regard paid by them to certain beasts than by us to the most sacred temples and images of the gods for many shrines have been rifled and images of the deities have been carried from their most sacred places by us but we never heard that an egyptian offered any violence to a crocodile an ibis or a cat what do you think then do not the egyptians esteem their sacred bull their apis as a deity yes by hercules as certainly as you do our protectress juno whom you never behold even in your dreams without a goat-skin a spear a shield and broad sandals but the grecian juno of argos and the roman juno are not represented in this manner so that the grecians the lanuvinians and we ascribe different forms to juno and our capitoline jupiter is not the same with jupiter ammon of the africans therefore ought not a natural philosopher that is an inquirer into the secrets of nature to be ashamed of seeking a testimony to truth from minds prepossessed by custom according to the rule you have laid down it may be said that jupiter is always bearded apollo always beardless that minerva has grey and neptune azure eyes and indeed we must then honour that vulcan at athens made by alcamenes whose lameness through his thin robes appears to be no deformity shall we therefore receive a lame deity because we have such an account of him consider likewise that the gods go by what names we give them now in the first place they have as many names as men have languages for vulcan is not called vulcan in italy africa or spain as you are called Veleus in all countries besides the gods are innumerable though the list of their names is of no great length even in the records of our priests have they no names you must necessarily confess indeed they have none for what occasion is there for different names if their persons are alike 
how much more laudable would it be valeius to acknowledge that you do not know what you do not know than to follow a man whom you must despise do you think the deity is like either me or you you do not really think he is like either of us what is to be done then shall i call the sun the moon or the sky a deity if so they are consequently happy but what pleasures can they enjoy and they are wise too but how can wisdom reside in such shapes these are your own principles therefore if they are not of human form as i have proved and if you cannot persuade yourself that they are of any other why are you cautious of denying absolutely the being of any gods you dare not deny it which is very prudent in you though here you are not afraid of the people but of the gods themselves i have known epicureans who reverence even the least images of the gods though i perceive it to be the opinion of some that epicurus through fear of offending against the athenian laws has allowed a deity in words and destroyed him in fact so in those his select and short sentences which are called by you kyriae doxai this i think is the first quote, that being which is happy and immortal is not burdened with any labour and does not impose any on any one else Close quote. in his statement of this sentence some think that he avoided speaking clearly on purpose though it was manifestly without design but they judge ill of a man who had not the least art it is doubtful whether he means that there is any being happy and immortal or that if there is any being happy he must likewise be immortal they do not consider that he speaks here indeed ambiguously but in many other places both he and metrodorus explain themselves as clearly as you have done but he believed there are gods nor have i ever seen any one who was more exceedingly afraid of what he declared ought to be no objects of fear namely death and the gods with the apprehensions of which the common rank of people are very little afraid but he says that the minds of all mortals are terrified by them many thousands of men commit robberies in the face of death others rifle all the temples they can get into such as these no doubt must be greatly terrified the one by the fears of death and the others by the fear of the gods but since you dare not for i am now addressing my discourse to epicurus himself absolutely deny the existence of the gods what hinders you from ascribing a divine nature to the sun the world or some eternal mind i never says he saw wisdom and a rational soul in any but a human form what did you ever observe anything like the sun the moon or the five moving planets the sun terminating his course in two extreme parts of one circle finishes his annual revolutions the moon receiving her light from the sun completes the same course in the space of a month 
the five planets in the same circle some nearer others more remote from the earth begin the same courses together and finish them in different spaces of time did you ever observe anything like this epicurus so that according to you there can be neither sun moon nor stars because nothing can exist but what we have touched or seen what have you ever seen the deity himself why else do you believe there is any if this doctrine prevails we must reject all that history relates or reason discovers and the people who inhabit inland countries must not believe there is such a thing as the sea this is so narrow a way of thinking that if you had been born in Sedifos and never had been from out of that island where you had frequently been in the habit of seeing little hares and foxes you would not therefore believe that there are such beasts as lions and panthers and if any one should describe an elephant to you you would think that he designed to laugh at you you indeed valeus have concluded your argument not after the manner of your own sect but of the logicians to which your people are utter strangers you have taken it for granted that the gods are happy i allow it you say that without virtue no one can be happy i willingly concur with you in this also you likewise say that virtue cannot reside where reason is not that i must necessarily allow you add moreover that reason cannot exist but in a human form who do you think will admit that if it were true what occasion was there to come so gradually to it and to what purpose you might have answered it on your own authority i perceive your gradations from happiness to virtue and from virtue to reason but how do you come from reason to human form there indeed you do not descend by degrees but precipitately nor can i conceive why epicurus should rather say the gods are like men than that men are like the gods you ask what is the difference for say you if this is like that that is like this i grant it but this i assert that the gods could not take their form from men for the gods always existed and never had a beginning if they are to exist eternally but men had a beginning therefore that form of which the immortal gods are must have had existence before mankind consequently the gods should not be said to be of human form but our form should be called divine however let this be as you will i now inquire how this extraordinary good fortune came about for you deny that reason had any share in the formation of things but still what was this extraordinary fortune whence proceeded that happy concourse of atoms which gave so sudden a rise to men in the form of gods are we to suppose the divine seed fell from heaven upon earth and that men sprung up in the likeness of their celestial sires i wish you would assert it for i should not be unwilling to acknowledge my relation to the gods but you say nothing like it no our resemblance to the gods it seems was by chance 
must I now seek for arguments to refute this doctrine seriously? I wish I could as easily discover what is true as I can overthrow what is false. You have enumerated with so ready a memory, and so copiously, the opinions of philosophers, from Thales the Milesian, concerning the nature of the gods, that I am surprised to see so much learning in a Roman. But do you think they were all madmen who thought that a deity could by some possibility exist without hands and feet? Does not even this consideration have weight with you when you consider what is the use and advantage of limbs in men, and lead you to admit that the gods have no need of them? What necessity can there be of feet without walking, or of hands if there is nothing to be grasped? The same may be asked of the other parts of the body in which nothing is vain, nothing useless, nothing superfluous. Therefore we may infer that no art can imitate the skill of nature. Shall the deity, then, have a tongue and not speak? Teeth, palate, and jaws, though he will have no use for them. Shall the members which nature has given to the body for the sake of generation be useless to the deity? Nor would the internal parts be less superfluous than the external. What comeliness is there in the heart, the lungs, the liver, and the rest of them, abstracted from their use? I mention these because you place them in the deity on account of the beauty of the human form. Depending on these dreams, not only Epicurus, Metrodorus, and Hermachus declaimed against Pythagoras, Plato, and Empedocles, but that little harlot Leontium presumed to write against Theophrastus. Indeed, she had a neat Attic style, but yet to think of her arguing against Theophrastus. So much did the garden of Epicurus abound with these liberties, and indeed you are always complaining against them. Zeno wrangled. Why need I mention Albutius? Nothing could be more elegant or humane than Phaedrus, yet a sharp expression would disgust the old man. Epicurus treated Aristotle with great contumely. He foully slandered Phaedo, the disciple of Socrates. He pelted Timocrates, the brother of his companion Metrodorus, with whole volumes, because he disagreed with him in some trifling point of philosophy. He was ungrateful even to Democritus, whose follower he was, and his master Nosophanes, from whom he learned nothing, had no better treatment from him. Zeno gave abusive language not only to those who were then living, as Apollodorus, Silas, and the rest, but he called Socrates, who was the father of philosophy, the Attic buffoon, using the Latin word scura. He never called Chrysippus by any name but Chesippus, and you yourself a little before, when you were numbering up a senate, as we may call them of philosophers, scrupled not to say that the most eminent men talked like foolish visionary dotards. Certainly, therefore, if they have all erred in regard to the nature of the gods, it is to be feared there are no such beings. What you deliver on that head are all whimsical notions, 
and not worthy the consideration even of old women for you do not seem to be in the least aware what a task you draw on yourselves if you should prevail on us to grant that the same form is common to gods and men the deity would then require the same trouble in dressing and the same care of the body that mankind does he must walk run lie down lean sit hold speak and discourse you need not be told the consequence of making the gods male and female therefore i cannot sufficiently wonder how this chief of yours came to entertain these strange opinions but you constantly insist on the certainty of this tenet that the deity is both happy and immortal supposing he is so would his happiness be less perfect if he had not two feet or cannot that blessedness or beatitude call it what you will they are both harsh terms but we must mollify them by use can it not i say exist in that sun or in this world or in some eternal mind that has not human shape or limbs all you say against it is that you never saw any happiness in the sun or the world what then did you ever see any world but this no you will say why therefore do you presume to assert that there are not only six hundred thousand worlds but that they are innumerable reason tells you so will not reason tell you likewise that as in our inquiries into the most excellent nature we find none but the divine nature can be happy and eternal so the same divine nature surpasses us in excellence of mind and as in mind so in body why therefore as we are inferior in all other respects should we be equal in form for human virtue approaches nearer to the divinity than human form to return to the subject i was upon what can be more childish than to assert that there are no such creatures as are generated in the red sea or in india the most curious inquirer cannot arrive at the knowledge of all those creatures which inhabit the earth sea fens and rivers and shall we deny the existence of them because we never saw them that similitude which you are so very fond of is nothing to the purpose is not a dog like a wolf and as ennius says quote, the monkey filthiest beast how like to man Close quote. yet they differ in nature no beast has more sagacity than an elephant yet where can you find any of a larger size i am speaking here of beasts but among men do we not see a disparity of manners in persons very much alike and a similitude of manners in persons unlike if this sort of argument were once to prevail willius observe what it would lead to you have laid it down as certain that reason cannot possibly reside in any but the human form another may affirm that it can exist in none but a terrestrial being in none but a being that is born that grows up and receives instruction and that consists of a soul and an infirm and perishable body in short in none but a mortal man 
but if you decline those opinions why should a single form disturb you you perceive that man is possessed of reason and understanding with all the infirmities which i have mentioned interwoven with his being abstracted from which you nevertheless know god you say if the lineaments do but remain this is not talking considerately but at a venture for surely you did not think what an encumbrance anything superfluous or useless is not only in a man but a tree how troublesome it is to have a finger too much and why so because neither use nor ornament requires more than five but your deity has not only a finger more than he wants but a head a neck shoulders sides a paunch back hams hands feet thighs and legs are these parts necessary to immortality are they conducive to the existence of the deity is the face itself of use one would rather say so of the brain the heart the lights and the liver for these are the seats of life the features of the face contribute nothing to the preservation of it you censured those who beholding those excellent and stupendous works the world and its respective parts the heaven the earth the seas and the splendor with which they are adorned who contemplating the sun moon and stars and who observing the maturity and changes of the seasons and vicissitudes of times inferred from thence that there must be some excellent and eminent essence that originally made and still moves directs and governs them suppose they should mistake in their conjecture yet i see what they aim at but what is that great and noble work which appears to you to be the effect of a divine mind and from which you conclude that there are gods i have say you a certain information of a deity imprinted in my mind of a bearded jupiter i suppose and a helmeted minerva but do you really imagine them to be such how much better are the notions of the ignorant vulgar who not only believe the deities have members like ours but that they make use of them and therefore they assign them a bow and arrows a spear a shield a trident and lightning and though they do not behold the actions of the gods yet they cannot entertain a thought of a deity doing nothing the egyptians so much ridiculed held no beasts to be sacred except on account of some advantage which they had received from them the ibis a very large bird with strong legs and a horny long beak destroys a great number of serpents these birds keep egypt from pestilential diseases by killing and devouring the flying serpents brought from the deserts of libya by the south-west wind which prevents the mischief that may attend their biting while alive or any infection when dead i could speak of the advantage of the ichneumon the crocodile and the cat but i am unwilling to be tedious yet i will conclude with observing that the barbarians paid divine honours to beasts because of the benefits they received from them whereas your gods not only confer no benefit but are idle and do no single act of any description whatever 
they have nothing to do your teacher says epicurus truly like indolent boys thinks nothing preferable to idleness yet those very boys when they have a holiday entertain themselves in some sport of exercise but we are to suppose the deity in such an inactive state that if he should move we may justly fear he would be no longer happy this doctrine divests the gods of motion and operation besides it encourages men to be lazy as they are by this taught to believe that the least labour is incompatible even with divine felicity but let it be as you would have it that the deity is in the form and image of a man where is his abode where is his habitation where is the place where he is to be found what is his course of life and what is it that constitutes the happiness which you assert that he enjoys for it seems necessary that a being who is to be happy must use and enjoy what belongs to him and with regard to place even those natures which are inanimate have each their proper stations assigned to them so that the earth is the lowest then water is next above the earth the air is above the water and fire has the highest situation of all allotted to it some creatures inhabit the earth some the water and some of an amphibious nature live in both there are some also which are thought to be born in fire and which often appear fluttering in burning furnaces in the first place therefore i ask you where is the habitation of your deity secondly what motive is it that stirs him from his place supposing he ever moves and lastly since it is peculiar to animated beings to have an inclination to something that is agreeable to their several natures what is it that the deity affects and to what purpose does he exert the motion of his mind and reason in short how is he happy how eternal whichever of these points you touch upon i am afraid you will come lamely off for there is never a proper end to reasoning which proceeds on a false foundation for you asserted likewise that the form of the deity is perceptible by the mind but not by sense that it is neither solid nor invariable in number that it is to be discerned by similitude and transition and that a constant supply of images is perpetually flowing on from innumerable atoms on which our minds are intent so that we from that conclude that divine nature to be happy and everlasting what in the name of those deities concerning whom we are now disputing is the meaning of all this for if they exist only in thought and have no solidity nor substance what difference can there be between thinking of a hippocentaur and thinking of a deity other philosophers call every such confirmation of the mind a vain motion but you term it the approach and entrance of images into the mind thus when i imagine that i behold t gracchus haranguing the people in the capital and collecting their suffrages concerning m octavius i call that a vain motion of the mind but you affirm that the images of gracchus and octavius are present 
which are only conveyed to my mind when they have arrived at the capital the case is the same you say in regard to the deity with the frequent representation of which the mind is so affected that from thence it may be clearly understood that the gods are happy and eternal let it be granted that there are images by which the mind is affected yet it is only a certain form that occurs and why must that form be pronounced happy why eternal but what are those images you talk of or whence do they proceed this loose manner of arguing is taken from democritus but he is reproved by many people for it nor can you derive any conclusions from it the whole system is weak and imperfect for what can be more improbable than that the images of homer archilochus romulus numa pythagoras and plato should come into my mind and yet not in the form in which they existed how therefore can they be those persons and whose images are they aristotle tells us that there never was such a person as orpheus the poet and it is said that the verse called orphic verse was the invention of cercops a pythagorean yet orpheus that is to say the image of him as you will have it often runs in my head what is the reason that i entertain one idea of the figure of the same person and you another why do we imagine to ourselves such things as never had any existence and which never can have such as scyllas and chimeras why do we frame ideas of men countries and cities which we never saw how is it that the very first moment that i choose i can form representations of them in my mind how is it that they come to me even in my sleep without being called or sought after the whole affair Valeius, is ridiculous you do not impose images on our eyes only but on our minds such is the privilege which you have assumed of talking nonsense with impunity but there is you say a transition of images flowing on in great crowds in such a way that out of many some one at least must be perceived i should be ashamed of my incapacity to understand this if you who assert it could comprehend it yourselves for how do you prove that these images are continued in uninterrupted motion or if uninterrupted still how do you prove them to be eternal there is a constant supply you say of innumerable atoms but must they for that reason be all eternal to elude this you have recourse to equilibration for so with your leave i will call your isonomia and say that as there is a sort of nature mortal so there must also be a sort which is immortal by the same rule as there are men mortal there are men immortal and as some arise from the earth some must arise from the water also and as there are causes which destroy there must likewise be causes which preserve be it as you say but let those causes preserve which have existence themselves i cannot conceive these your gods to have any but how does all this face of things arise from atomic corpuscles were there any such atoms 
as there are not, they might perhaps impel one another, and be jumbled together in their motion, but they could never be able to impart form, or figure, or colour, or animation, so that you by no means demonstrate the immortality of your deity. Let us now inquire into his happiness. It is certain that without virtue there can be no happiness, but virtue consists in action. Now your deity does nothing, therefore he is void of virtue, and consequently cannot be happy. What sort of life does he lead? He has a constant supply, you say, of good things, without any intermixture of bad. What are those good things? Sensual pleasures, no doubt, for you know no delight of the mind but what arises from the body and returns to it. I do not suppose, Valeius, that you are like some of the Epicureans who are ashamed of those expressions of Epicurus, in which he openly avows that he has no idea of any good separate from wanton and obscene pleasures, which, without a blush, he names distinctly. What food, therefore, what drink, what variety of music or flowers, what kind of pleasures of touch, what odours will you offer to the gods to fill them with pleasures? The poets indeed provide them with banquets of nectar and ambrosia, and a hebe or a ganymede to serve up the cup. But what is it, Epicurus, that you do for them? For I do not see from whence your deity should have those things, nor how he could use them. Therefore the nature of man is better constituted for a happy life than the nature of the gods, because men enjoy various kinds of pleasures. But you look on all those pleasures as superficial, which delight the senses only by a titillation, as Epicurus calls it. Where is to be the end of this trifling? Even Philo, who followed the academy, could not bear to hear the soft and luscious delights of the Epicureans despised, for with his admirable memory he perfectly remembered and used to repeat many sentences of Epicurus in the very words in which they were written. He likewise used to quote many which were more gross from Metrodorus, the sage colleague of Epicurus, who blamed his brother, Timocrates, because he would not allow that everything which had any reference to a happy life was to be measured by the belly, nor has he said this once only, but often. You grant what I say, I perceive, for you know it to be true. I can produce the books if you should deny it, but I am not now reproving you for referring all things to the standard of pleasure. That is another question. What I am now showing is that your gods are destitute of pleasure, and therefore, according to your own manner of reasoning, they are not happy. But they are free from pain. Is that sufficient for beings who are supposed to enjoy all good things and the most supreme felicity? The deity, they say, is constantly meditating on his own happiness, for he has no other idea which can possibly occupy his mind. Consider a little, reflect, what a figure the deity would make if he were to be idly thinking of nothing through all eternity but it is very well with me, and I am happy.
nor do i see why this happy deity should not fear being destroyed since without any intermission he is driven and agitated by an everlasting incursion of atoms and since images are constantly floating off from him your deity therefore is neither happy nor eternal epicurus it seems has written books concerning sanctity and piety towards the gods but how does he speak on these subjects you would say that you were listening to Curuncanius or Sivala, the high priests, and not to a man who tore up all religion by the roots, and who overthrew the temples and altars of the immortal gods, not indeed with hands like Xerxes, but with arguments. For what reason is there for your saying that men ought to worship the gods, when the gods not only do not regard men, but are entirely careless of everything, and absolutely do nothing at all. But they are, you say, of so glorious and excellent a nature that a wise man is induced by their excellence to adore them. Can there be any glory or excellence in that nature which only contemplates its own happiness, and neither will do, nor does, nor ever did anything? Besides, what piety is due to a being from whom you receive nothing? Or how can you or anyone else be indebted to him who bestows no benefits? For piety is only justice towards the gods. But what right have they to it when there is no communication whatever between the gods and men? And sanctity is the knowledge of how we ought to worship them, but I do not understand why they are to be worshipped if we are neither to receive nor expect any good from them. And why should we worship them from an admiration only of that nature in which we can behold nothing excellent? And as for that freedom from superstition, which you are in the habit of boasting of so much, it is easy to be free from that feeling when you have renounced all belief in the power of the gods, unless indeed you imagine that diagoras or theodorus who absolutely denied the being of the gods could possibly be superstitious i do not suppose that even protagoras could who doubted whether there were gods or not the opinions of these philosophers are not only destructive of superstition which arises from a vain fear of the gods but of religion also which consists in a pious adoration of them. What think you of those who have asserted that the whole doctrine concerning the immortal gods was the invention of politicians, whose view was to govern that part of the community by religion which reason could not influence? Are not their opinions subversive of all religion? Or what religion did Prodicus the Chian leave to men, who held that everything beneficial to human life should be numbered among the gods. Were not they, likewise, void of religion who taught that the deities, at present the object of our prayers and adoration, were valiant, illustrious, and mighty men, who arose to divinity after death? Euhemerus, whom our Aeneas translated and followed more than other authors, has particularly advanced this doctrine, and treated of the deaths and burials of the gods. 
can he then be said to have confirmed religion or rather to have totally subverted it i shall say nothing of that sacred and august elusina into whose mysteries the most distant nations were initiated nor of the solemnities in samothrace or in lemnos secretly resorted to by night and surrounded by thick and shady groves which if they were properly explained and reduced to reasonable principles would rather explain the nature of things than discover the knowledge of the gods even that great man democritus from whose fountains epicurus watered his little garden seems to me to be very inferior to his usual acuteness when speaking about the nature of the gods for at one time he thinks that there are images endowed with divinity inherent in the universality of things at another that the principles and minds contained in the universe are gods then he attributes divinity to animated images employing themselves in doing us good or harm and lastly he speaks of certain images of such vast extent that they encompass the whole outside of the universe all which opinions are more worthy of the country of democritus than of democritus himself for who can frame in his mind any ideas of such images who can admire them who can think they merit a religious adoration but epicurus when he divests the gods of the power of doing good extirpates all religion from the minds of men for though he says the divine nature is the best and the most excellent of all natures he will not allow it to be susceptible of any benevolence by which he destroys the chief and peculiar attribute of the most perfect being for what is better and more excellent than goodness and beneficence to refuse your gods that quality is to say that no man is any object of their favour and no gods either that they neither love nor esteem any one in short that they not only give themselves no trouble about us but even look on each other with the greatest indifference how much more reasonable is the doctrine of the stoics whom you censure it is one of their maxims that the wise are friends to the wise though unknown to each other for as nothing is more amiable than virtue he who possesses it is worthy our love to whatever country he belongs but what evils do your principles bring when you make good actions and benevolence the marks of imbecility for not to mention the power and nature of the gods you hold that even men if they had no need of mutual assistance would be neither courteous nor beneficent is there no natural charity in the dispositions of good men the very name of love from which friendship is derived is dear to men and if friendship is to centre in our own advantage only without regard to him whom we esteem a friend it cannot be called friendship but a sort of traffic for our own profit pastures lands and herds of cattle are valued in the same manner on account of the profit we gather from them but charity and friendship expect no return how much more reason have we to think that the gods who want nothing should love each other and employ themselves about us if it were not so 
why should we pray to or adore them why do the priests preside over the altars and the augurs over the auspices what have we to ask of the gods and why do we prefer our vows to them but epicurus you say has written a book concerning sanctity a trifling performance by a man whose wit is not so remarkable in it as the unrestrained license of writing which he has permitted himself for what sanctity can there be if the gods take no care of human affairs or how can that nature be called animated which neither regards nor performs anything therefore our friend posidonius has well observed in his fifth book of the nature of the gods that epicurus believed there were no gods and that what he had said about the immortal gods was only said from a desire to avoid unpopularity he could not be so weak as to imagine that the deity has only the outward features of a simple mortal without any real solidity that he has all the members of a man without the least power to use them a certain unsubstantial pellucid being neither favourable nor beneficial to any one neither regarding nor doing anything there can be no such being in nature and as epicurus said this plainly he allows the gods in words and destroys them in fact and if the deity is truly such a being that he shows no favour no benevolence to mankind away with him for why should i entreat him to be propitious he can be propitious to none since as you say all his favour and benevolence are the effects of imbecility end of book one recording in memory of mitchell edwards